Welcome to episode one of the Coaching Playbook. This week's guest is David Herity. Um, so when we recorded this in the summertime, uh, we didn't know, but David has just been appointed as the goalkeeping coach for the Tipperary Senior Hurlers. Um, so we talked all things goalkeeping, but as you can see throughout the episode, uh, David is uh, a really well-rounded manager, not just a, a goalkeeping coach, and he has some fantastic stories from his own playing days and his own coaching journey. Um, the Brian Cody story about being dropped for the All-Ireland Final is worth listening in its own right, and I suppose the lessons that David has learned um, in man management from that story alone are absolutely fantastic. Um, David also has just brought out a coaching manual, which we talk about in the uh, in the episode, this is a copy of it here. And he sent it out to me. Uh, fantastic resource for um, especially clubs if you don't have a specialist goalkeeping coach and things like that. And um, before we start, I'd just like to say a big thank you to the Irish Strength and Conditioning Network for sponsoring this series. Um, these things can't happen without sponsors. There's costs involved in everything. Uh, the Irish SNC Network is a diverse coaching network that includes members from a wide range of fields. From SNC coaches, sports scientists, and physiotherapists to students, hobbyists, and just anyone with an interest in coaching, um, from grassroots right up to elite performance. Um, as a listener of the coaching playbook, the Irish SNC Network are offering you a 30-day free trial. All you have to do is go to the Irish SNC Network.com and use the code ISCN Play at checkout. So that's ISCN Play, all one word at checkout to access um to access all the fantastic content available on the site so thanks for listening like and subscribe to all our channels and i hope you enjoy it today's guest has pretty much done it all as a player and is on i suppose a path to try and do the same as uh, as a manager and he has just released a manual on all things goalkeeping coaching so our focus today is going to be primarily talking about goalkeeping coaching uh david herty you are very welcome how are you great agent how are you keeping that i'm good i'm good i suppose david we've uh We've paddled the same canoe a few times, but not at the same time. We, our uh, our coaching and management careers have kind of crossed over a little bit. I think uh, you were you took over as the Kildare manager not long after um, we had finished up. Uh, Joe Quaid had finished up. I was part of his coaching team, and then obviously I uh, done the Bonish door bib and done a couple of people. Left it. We have a few um, similarities. Um, you jumped straight into management, really. I suppose from your from your playing days, you didn't give yourself uh, and into the Kildare hurlers, where you've only just finished up. Question would be: Do you see any major differences in coaching male and female players? I would. Um... I, I think the commitment levels of both are pretty similar. I thought the, I my eyes were open just to, to the level of commitments that the Dublin Camogie girls were at. I would have thought that it was at a, it possibly would have been at a different level when it started. I would think that there's, I would think there's very very little. Um, I think where the big kind of difference is between both of them. The, the, the girls would soak up absolutely every single in, bit of information that you are willing to give to them. And I think um, the, the reason they do that is they're probably not coached as well at underage or back with their clubs as well. Um, not everywhere all over the, the, the country, but sometimes uh, clubs can somehow, they can put a lot of the resources into the male side of the game or the male part of the club, um, a lot of the finances, and then the girls get maybe you know a father um, or an uncle or someone who has retired on the, the coaching side of things, and it's um, 
it's it sometimes is an afterthought where in the male game they get the best of the best and a lot of the resources is pu pumped in there and obviously the male game is further ahead but it is because of the level of finance that is available um between psychologists and nutritionists but everything but everything is catching up now analysis everything is catching up like if you look at i'm sure any of the teams that you were when you were involved with dublin and how things have progressed over the last few years um it has taken on a whole different level and the girls are able to rise up to that so if the resources are made available, I, I feel that there's there's little or nothing in the difference. Obviously, in the strength and speeds that the lads can get up to, but that's just genetics. Like um, the girls are willing to, to put in the same level of effort, and uh, yeah, I, I I'd be incredibly invaluable to my years as a coach because I did a year coaching with Dublin Camogie um, before I took over as manager. The big thing for me was uh, they provided me with an opportunity to actually go back and, and realize what coaching is. A lot of what I would have come in, sorry, from the first year of coaching, I would have just basically shouted instructions. It wasn't coaching. It was just, this is what you do. You know, get in and win the ball and off you go. And then you kind of realize, as you you know, like simple things like rooks, get in and win the rook. And then you realize, well, what the hell does that actually mean? And you actually had to go right back to what does actually winning the rook mean and then break every single thing down because the girls didn't know and, and not out of they weren't coached it or maybe again it was it's the it's the ignorance from my own part and maybe coaches that might have been involved before that we generally just tend to shout the instructions without really getting down to the basics so that provided me with the opportunity it was a it was a massive eye-opener and obviously i've been very grateful to take that into any of the rest of the teams i've been involved with yeah, I remember writing an article years ago for, for this crowd and it was, uh, are you a trainer or a coach? And the difference between the two, and like anyone that's been involved in hurling really could go out and set up a training session, but not everybody can go and coach it. I think it's a crucial uh, crucial distinction, really. I think I, I had a similar experience this year at Dublin Miners. I suppose I'd been with adult teams for so long um, mm. that I actually found after the first couple of sessions that my coaching wasn't good enough and my language wasn't that. I suppose... Uh, a rot, not a rot, but uh, like I was coaching players who were at a certain level and I didn't really have to come down and I actually struggled with it for quite a while is to kind of, I suppose, be a little bit more, um, uh, little, give better direction and, and use better language with the young lads. So it's, it was definitely an eye opener for me. As you say, you can, you can think you're coaching, but you're not sometimes. So it's, it, it's very, very interesting. Um, along the lines of that, David, you coach primarily um, and for our listeners who might not know the difference, what do you think the key differences are at inter-county level between the two? In inter-county and club, it, the big thing for me is the commitment levels of the players. Um, what I love about inter-county and what I find very difficult to go back to uh, coaching club is the fact that you have the best of the best available to you. The fact that you also have, um, if someone gets injured, you're not looking back to your club kind of junior B team and trying to bring someone up. You're 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 looking back to there's another hundred, two hundred, three hundred lads that are that are available at club level that you're able to go back and and pick the best of them or go to the under twenty grade. So it's just availability of the players. Um, again, it comes down to the commitment levels of. And I only spoke to a, a friend of mine who's training a the team there the other day, and I said, "How did he get on championship the weekend?" He's like. Uh, four lads are going off travelling there for a couple of weeks. They just booked the holidays in the middle of the championship. And you're kind of just going, well, how do you... He goes, I've just become acclimatised to it now. It's just it's just what happens. Like, or someone just doesn't turn up. And again, it could be the main player. It could be your free taker. And you can't drop them. And 
I, I find that very, very difficult to be able to put up with that. I wouldn't have a, a great amount of patience um, when it comes to, you, you know, you're either, you're either there and you're fully committed or you're not there at all. And, and I just find that that's where inter-county is at at the moment, that it's, uh, and I enjoy the split season. I think it's, it's a brilliant way of when you're doing your Jerry Maguire um, conversation with a lot of players at the start of the year and begging them to basically come in and try and sell them a dream um, at the start of the year to actually go along now and say, you're going to be finished absolutely 100% by the end of May. That is it done. And then you can go traveling and do whatever you want. But you get buy-in, and once they're committed, they're absolutely fully 100% in, and that's great. Uh, whereas club players and still, there's, and it depends on the club, obviously. It depends on the area that you're in. But there's still a little bit kind of like, you need me a bit more than I need you kind of job, and uh, that just kills me. It would just kill me to be kind of, to be listening to that or to, uh, I suppose, to have the patience for it. But then again, you, uh, like in any scenario, when you go into your team, when you've gone from senior players to minor players, you, I suppose, become acclimatised to it. And uh, I just, um, it's the, Jesus, the commitment. I just love it. I love the fact that when you're in with an uh, inter-county team, that everyone's there, they're available, they're, they're most of them are hungry, they're eating up with what you're saying. They obviously have the facilities and you have the facilities to try and improve them as well. So it's, um, it's all there for them. Mm. Yeah, it, 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 you definitely become accustomed to it. Like, Joe, you go back to the club, then you kind of you think, oh, geez, I'm going for the dinner now and it's not there. <laughs> Little things like that. But like, I think I, I've like, coached a good few club teams over the years and my big thing would be um, is uh, to go in with a single-code club. It's something I would have struggled with over the years. Like, we had a really, really strong team in Airog there, 2017-18 in Ennis. Shane O'Donnell, David Reedy, all these boys. But... Once championship got going, then we'd play championship on a Saturday and we wouldn't see 15 or 16 of our panel again until the following Tuesday night week, whereas you know, the likes of Kilmaley and, and Clooney and these lads and the bridge are, are are back in Monday night looking at the game, working for the week and playing challenge matches and stuff. And it's just, it was kind of frustrating. You'd be kind of, you know, and like fantastic dual club. And I mean, you look at the likes of Lockmore and Lockmore Castellani and these, they, they have a really specific set up in place to do it so you have to admire those who can do it but definitely for me for going back to club will be a single call club and and and, and good commitment you know it's, it's um, becoming it's becoming less and less that kind of the the dual players i know in certain counties obviously they can't do it but i, I would have even seen it with nace there they would have had when i started off five years ago they might have had about six dual players and that kind of was has whittled itself down to two lads there now at the moment it's just it's the club has become so professional and a lot of the top clubs in counties have, like you look at Nafina as well, they might have two croaks there that were getting to the finals the last few years. They had two and one of them was a sub. It's just not something um, that's re- that you can really do to try and perfect both sports in any code. Even at club level is becoming more and more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And look, it's it's not really a thing that can be done in the in the Camogie either anymore. You know, it was such a thing there for a while, but I suppose it's a, it's a dying breed. It's just the commitment is too much. And I suppose there's... There's probably too much on the line for managers and coaches to allow it anyway. Do you know, like, do you really want to put a team out on the pitch where 30% of them have only been there half the time? You know, it's it's ultimately your reputation that's on the line and you know, your team is a reflection of yourself. So it's a risk to take for a manager as well. So, you know. It is. And it is. You're right. It's a results-based game and uh, it's so tough on managers. And I, and I hate, and I don't like, I don't like being the prick that's kind of going to turn around to someone and kind of go, well, you can't play football. You know, that you're trying to be as accommodating. But even you'd find that there as, um, obviously, senior, again, inter-county, and lads are playing with Fitzgibbon and Sigerson and 
different things and you try and be as accommodating as possible because you hope then you're eventually going to get it back but it's uh it's it's tough going i i do admire some of the coaches that um have the philosophy of fit in or, or fuck off kind of um excuse the language like but they're very straight down the line and they're kind of going that's it that this is the way we're doing it and i don't know i i worked with one coach in particular and that was his attitude and that's what he'd say to the players and uh or one manager and uh it, it, it jesus it, i don't know it, it you get results it's pretty much you put someone with the pressure on. If you put the pressure on there, you better be delivering a title at the end of it to make sure. Look, this is why I was fairly hard on you. But it's uh, I I don't know. It, it my whole head is a bit all over the place. Kind of even with some of the kind of the coaching as to to and this is why I kind of left Calair and I will hopefully go in with a backroom team in in twenty twenty four. It's just to try and see how someone else does it. Um, I've kind of obviously been in the, the, the management seat for seven years now at this stage, um, but just to try and actually see how does another backroom team work, how do they interact with players, am I right or am I way off the scale here um, in what I'm doing? So that's the that's the hope going forward for a year or two to actually to learn and obviously bring something to a backroom team, whatever I can. Yeah, absolutely. Look, that, look, that was primarily my motivation for going in with Galway this year as well in that analysis role and that it kind of gives you that opportunity to sit back a little bit and observed you know obviously Cahill there has won a couple of our Irelands and he'd Cora Staunton coming in with him was such a legend in, in multiple sports and Gavin Keir he's been with a number of different teams and it's kind of it's just it's just an opportunity to sit back and go okay let's let's absorb a little bit of this and see and and, and take the good things and, and take the bad things because they're in every management team as well more so than ourselves and and just and just see and learn from that so I think it's uh, for any coaches listening if, you, if you've done a lot of management it's good to just kind of take a a smaller role in a team and sit back and do a bit of learning for a while. There's no harm in pausing the pausing the management career, I think. Um, but look, David, today's episode is primarily about goalkeeping. So you came in, take Kilkenny Minor at 16. Um, what type of goalkeeping coaching would you have been receiving at that time? And how did it evolve junior, during your career, if it did at all? Um, anything I would say from um, my, from ever pretty much right up until after I finished inter-county, a lot of it was shot-stopping, and that was it. Shot-stopping, a bit of catching, that's pretty much it. We did nothing on puck-outs, we did nothing on puck-out tactics, um, nothing on movement, uh, footwork drills, absolutely zero, unless we did something with the the rest of the management team. And and a lot of my frustration was born out of kind of... and. and where I kind of really focus in on the coaching. And, and again, I suppose you, you kind of mentioned the, the manual there. A lot of it was based on the fact that I would play a game, do something wrong, then be annoyed with myself and then kind of go, right, I need to rectify this. I need to come up with an activity here that's going to try and improve so that this doesn't happen again. So I'd be I'd be very specific in kind of looking back in games and I, Jesus, I'd, I'd look up sports file so that they could slow it down even further to a point where you could... You could see a goal because generally, if your goal goes in, someone has taken about ten different photos of it, and you just kind of notice um, if your footwork was right, whether you're actually looking at the ball or your head was down. I can I can just think of one in particular, David Breen. Um, he scored a goal against me in the 2012 quarter final in the first half, and I went out to the ball. I I should have blocked it where he was taking the shot, but if I look back in sports file, you can see that my head was just turned. The smallest little thing like that. That then you go along and go right. We need to go work on a block, and and it's uh, you just kept adding in these things. 
like Martin Fogarty in with me with Kilkenny, he did a bit of goalkeeping, but again, it was a shot stop. And someone take a shot from there, there, and there, and that's it, or take 10 shots from there, um, or get a few lads to run in and take shots. But there's no coaching, it's just there, take shots, and hopefully, you save them, and you keep going and keep going. And generally, a lot of what clubs do, um, you kind of cringe when you when you think about it like they line everyone up everyone takes about 20 shots you might stop because you're buzzing you're full of energy in the first and you might stop about 15 and then it's like right lads he's too confident he's too cocky let's let's line up again and obviously at that stage you're exhausted and you're kind of going you know can we a bit of a break no let's keep going then they rattle in maybe 15 out of 20 and the next one and next thing is like there you go that's it done so it's like we've done your bit with you you were a bit conf- you were a bit cocky now we've kind of rattled your, uh, we've put you back in your box and off we go again. And that's it. Who needs a confident goalie anyway? What team needs a confident goalie? <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, when I, when I came into Kilkenny, um, I, was in, I was in on the panel in 2003. James McGarry had, bro- had fractured, a hairline fracture in his ankle. So I came in for about a month. We'd won the, the league. PJ Ryan had um, an outstanding league final. We'd made a brilliant save near the end to win that against Tipperary. Um, but the goalkeeping sessions that were done there were McGarry would go one side of the field, PJ would go the other, and they would rattle balls as high and as long and as hard as each other. That was it. That was you go to width to the width of the fields. So when I came back in when I was then um invited back in in two thousand and eight, uh it was the exact same. Everything was the exact same. So I remember going up to Martin Fogarty at the time and kind of saying to him, um, is there any chance like you know, is there any chance I can go up into the goal and actually do a bit of practice in goal? instead of just being outfield and, and Martin at the time was like, well, the two boys, you know, they're basically top of their game and this is what they do. They go across the field and they go rattling balls and I suppose you can't argue their first touch was outstanding and their catch was outstanding but if you, if you were to ask where, like, it, it's a pretty nuts that you can kind of go that 15 years ago, how to become a better goalie was don't stand in the goal. Practice <laughs> the field. And that was it. And it was only a case of then after a while, I was like, I can't do that. Because I, I had the worst year with the club that year. I was third choice goalkeeper, basically a, a glorified mascot with Kenny that year. We won the All-Ireland. But I was I was horrific. I didn't I didn't play any of the matches in training. I didn't get any chance to do any of the training beforehand because I, we couldn't go up to the goal because that was, that was looked down on. And then I went back to the club and I remember my position and under high balls in around the goal, just knowing the area was brutal because we didn't get back to the club until maybe 10 days before championship um and that was it we got one game and we were knocked out and uh i remember just thinking that was that 2009 and as soon as we were in we were going straight up to the goal and we're spending our time there because it's jesus obviously it makes sense but th- like that that was back then things have been things have improved but when i finished up with james in 2014 it was the same crack it was just shot stop and shot stop and shot stop and a few high balls in that was it done and dusted yeah, I suppose like that that would be, I suppose, um reflective of the game at the time maybe as well, and that like th- there was never really much put into first year against me, a very good me team to beat Antrim in the final afterwards. And like even as good but one puck out and used it like ten or eleven times in a row and won it ten or eleven We thought we were after like taking it's phenomenal, you know, nobody is. Even if we go back to like analysis and things like that, it's been done. So they didn't have someone sitting up in the stand going, guys, this is the same move over and over again. It's just you never get away with that now. It's just teams are so well prepared. There's so many eyes on the game. Like, 
it's just a completely different next question you, just, you spoke about the manual there obviously you had that experience as um as a player yourself how does what you do as a goalkeeping coach know or the content of the manual like it's obviously chalk and cheese david Talk, tell us about the difference or what kind of stuff do you do with the goalies now the 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 major difference is you have to guess what what's in the manual is the fact that and the reason why I did it is it comes to this time of the year when championship is just about could be anything about two months around the corner. Um I started in May when when I'd finished up with Kildare and I had some downtime in the evenings and just to fill it up and just to uh to not get that kind of a bit of a crash after championship and keep the mind going. I started this. The thing is clubs then start ringing you around June, July and they say you wouldn't do a bit with the keeper because I'd say, and I'd often say, you know, if I ever go to a to do a course, I, if my opening question is on a scale of one to five, how how much you do with your keeper? Five being you do about thirty minutes every single night, and you know, one meaning you barely know a surname. That's kind of where you're at, and uh, I'd say predominantly you kind of get about a two, and that's because they've poked a few balls in them. And my thing is that at least with I can go do a session, that's no hassle at all, but you're not, the, the keepers might learn a bit from that and that's it. But unless you have a coach that's actually spending time with them, um, unless the goalkeepers actually have a proper progression, that you can do a series of activities and there's loads of books out there. And even before I started this, you, you kind of look it up. The amount of uh, podcasts, the amount of, uh, you know, uh, web pages that are dedicated and videos online that are dedicated to football is absolutely true to roof. Football and goalkeepers is true to roof. The hurling goalkeepers are is such a neglected position. But on top of that, then you have lads who will come down and they'll do their bit of shot stopping, maybe a few puck outs, bit of catching, and that's it and done. What I kind of hoped to do then is not just give a series of activities, but a progressive set of activities that can take your keeper from week one to week six that there's the, the eight steps there between uh, footwork and communication and shot stopping and first touch and the game base where they're included back in with the, the rest of the team as well and puck outs um, and the low block as well and bring that together and see where your player is at, your goalkeeper is at in week one, see them at week six then and prepare them that way. But that a goalkeeper can literally pick it up and there it is to be able to talk away to their goalkeeper and know what to say to their keeper and ask the right questions. Or again, if a goalkeeper, and, and again, we don't all, not all clubs ha, are blessed enough to have have full-time coaches or someone there that's uh, available, but at least the goalkeeper can pick it up or have it there. It's waterproof, stick it behind beside the goal, have a look over. There's four activities there per session and be able to, to look at it that way. But there's so many neglected things. Like we spoke about there, like for me, and I, I know you might talk about it uh, again in a while, but the, the, the footwork is key to everything. And the, the, you know, you often see there a, a goalkeeper and the ball, he drops the ball into the back of the net. But if you kind of, again, if you slow it back and if you see the, the ball coming in, you'll see the footwork, the, the legs crossing underneath him. The fact that they're not just, they're not up in the balls of their feet. They're not getting over and then catching the ball directly, trying to underneath their head where they're in that strong athletic position. And again, that comes back down to their foundation, which is the footwork. Like every keeper should be doing that for for 15 minutes of a training session and it's not just footwork and no ball it can be footwork and you've been taking shots of footwork and then you're coming out and you're rising and you're hitting a target but your feet if your footwork is spot on that then adds to everything else it's a bit like if you go back to the Nicky Quaid save in 2018 when he made that save uh, against Cork you know the ability to be able to 
go in, he's going in one direction, he's coming back, bounding back, and he's getting the flick. Again, that all comes back to the, the, the stability of the legs, the, the balance that he has, obviously the footwork that he's done to be able to do that. Other keepers will go in one direction, the knee will buckle, it'll head one side, fall into the net, the ball is buried in the back of the net, and no one will say a thing. But it's, it's getting right down to the basics of that. And then the other thing is obviously communication is absolutely vital. It's, com- it's completely neglected. If your keeper, your keeper only has two major jobs, and that is to control his box, anything that comes in there, and control his backs. And if he's able to do that, Again, to give, give uh, Martin Fogarty credit, you can say before, if the keeper, if everyone else does their job, the keeper shouldn't have anything to do in a match, which is obviously, it's very simplistic, but it's, it's a fair point. But if the goalkeeper is able to organise his defenders and make sure that everyone's in the position, they get very little work. And, and that is something that has to be worked on with your goalkeeper. If you're, if you're a manager, pretty much the goalkeeper should be organising absolutely everything. You're organising from the sideline, you should be organised from from the goal. And I would say, out of any of the keepers I've ever coached, Paddy McKenna is the best from Kildare. Absolutely outstanding. And I only realised how properly how outstanding he was when we had a video behind the game. And I heard, I just listened to him for, I wanted to see where he was hitting the puck outs and just the movement of the forwards. And just to listen to him, just how clear, concise, given the name, given obviously the person's name as well. But just the instruction. The instruction was clear and concise, and he was extremely loud. He's outstanding. Sean Brennan has improved. I've spent some time with Sean over the last few years between uh, different teams, and uh, he has improved dramatically as well um, in the way that he can organise defence. So it's uh, mm-hmm. the it, what, where I'd be quite critical of of certain teams. Of just if you look back in the Leinster Championship, and you're looking at communication there. Of you know when when it, somebody is running directly straight in on goal. Um, if you think of the Walter Wells goal or the Mikey Butler goal against Galway in the Leinster final there this year, they're just running straight through. Why has nobody been released to go across and meet them? Like your job as a keeper is if someone's running in, you have to release a defender. Your job is to try and make sure that the most amount of passes go on in that area because that's where the panic stations go on. That's where someone overhits a pass or the under hit a pass and then the whole thing is, is messed up. If you allow someone to just run straight in and bury it, you have no chance. But that all comes down to the keeper. A lot of work has to be put in and that's why it's one of the, the main sections of the, the book. Yeah, I suppose like the, the big thing that's that's coming to me out of that and is any coaches listening in is you can't have your goalies and your defence working in isolation. So you can't step out into a game and, and say, right, well, the goalie's done his work. Like, it's crucial. So it's a big thing. I'd always say I've never coached a goalkeeper. Acts, Joe, like when you're doing analysis and one-on-one stuff, and you get roasted, whose fault is it? So like, as well as it's your responsibility to be selfish and pull defenders back into that space and organise and stuff like that. So it's it's crucial. And look, it does it does uh, lead me on to the next question. Like, one thing we haven't touched on here is just statistics and how the game has changed. And with, with the roughly in an intercounty hurling match, a goalie's going to have ball in his hand maybe forty times, maybe more than forty times, uncontested possession. So, like, that's how important the keeper is. Like, if you think. If an outfield player has the ball in their hand 15 or 16 times, they're having an absolute rager of a game. You know? So it's like the, the goalie is going to have it at least twice as much. So it's so, so important. But what the question I have for you would be, like, you start of the year, what are the five key things you'd work on with a goalkeeper? And um, I remember when I, we started off coaching, Willie Banks is big into goalie coaching as well. You've probably come across mm-hmm. him. I'd always be slagging him saying back in 10 years ago, sure, all you have to do is block the ball and puck it out. And he still reminds me of that to this day. But... 
you mentioned shot stopping there. I'm going to presume it's way down the list of priorities, David, is it? Or what, what would your top five be? Obviously, you've given us two already, the footwork and the communication. What would, yeah. what would the other two be? Positioning. Again, if you've um, basically know your angles, if you're in the line, down the line, if you're in the line of the shot, again, it's a, you know, I again, any matches that I'd ever be looking at, I'd look at the goal and I'm, I'm always kind of eager to kind of look back on, uh, because of... Um, the way RT obviously have a uh, could have a camera in the goal, they have behind the goal as well. Just actually see where the goalkeeper is. I don't want to name and shame any keepers there at all at this stage. But like you would, do you know what I actually will? If you look at, um, <laughs> yes, I was going to go go for quite. Here we go. <laughs> a good example would be Keane Kenny's goal in the All Ireland semi final last year against Clare. If you look at his goal and you look at the positioning of the keeper. He's about three yards outside the box and he's completely over to the right-hand side as we're looking at, so it'll be his left-hand side. King Kenny slots the ball just nicely down into the ground and into the back of the net. Like, it just, he left the, the, the goal wide open. If you do that, if, it, if a forward is running through and you have your angles correct and you basically narrowed off the position, you've, you're in line, you've come out of the goal, they have very little to do. They have only a few options that they can do. And number one is obviously slot it over the bar. They panic and hit it over the bar. Number two, they can go for a top corner or a bottom corner because you pretty much have everything barred these little few inches. It goes wider, it goes over the bar. Again, if you have your position right, and sorry, if you have your communication right and your position right, they'll end up panicking and try and hand pass it off to somewhere else. And then you get out and you get your block in. But the last thing is what most uh, forwards do is they don't know what to do. And because they don't know, they don't have an actual position to hit it into, they just go for power and then they just drive it straight at the keeper. The complete yeah. You're on a slight tangent. So while we're talking about this, you're saying forwards don't know what to do. When you're coaching a team um, and you're coaching the forwards, how much interaction do you have? Like from what you're saying to me here, the most logical thing in the world to do would be to have the goalie coach coaching the forwards. <laughs> because if you're talking about one-on-one -on -one finishing situations yeah. nobody knows better like the goalies and the goalie coach know what they want the forward to do so that they miss so like do you do much that or is, like that's just something that's going to my head I don't know, I don't know. Is it yeah every, every single day before championship every single day before every match this year I took them for 15 minutes um, and goal scoring a few a few uh point scoring but mainly goal scoring and where to go to, where to hit the ball and again if you're running in across the goal um, if you look at Connor Whelan's goal against Owen Murphy this year in the Leinster final he's running in from the Hogan stand and he slots it down in he doesn't go across the keeper most forwards go across the keeper and the keeper's already in the position he's ready to dive and he's ready to make that save Connor Whelan's running in and he slots it down to the far side, and no one doesn't have a chance to kind of react back to it. Um, uh, we've done that's so not, much. That's, of, that's not an accident, like. Oh, it's not an accident. Yeah, like, and, and no, that's that's been drilled, like. It has been, and again, if you look at the the second goal, actually, Jason Flynn's goal against Owen again, it was a perfect example. I think it was the the third or fourth goal. Uh, God, we got that day again. Owen actually fell back into the back of the net, and Owen is obviously an amazing goalie, but. Jason Flynn was running down to trying to see what way the camera works as you. Again, it's uh, Hogan stand. Owen was diving because he thought he was going to go across him into the Cusack and, and uh, Jason Flynn just slotted it down to his right. And Owen was completely off balance and ended up actually doing two somersaults back in, kind of into the goal or tumbles back into the net. But that is, that's the kind of level of finishing. It's, it's 
we had it once this year. I, I, Jerry Keegan did it against Offaly um, in the league final in the first few minutes, and it was just beautiful because we practiced it so much. And eventually came in. Now, hopefully, we wanted to kind of hit it down low into the ground. Jerry hit a top corner kind of job. But again, he didn't go across the keeper. Um, keeper was ready to go straight away over to this side. And next team was just slotted down in lovely into the back of the net. You have to spend time. Again, you're right. The goalkeeper, trying trying to actually get onto the forwards going, this is what you do. And they're there fighting you. And you're kind of going, I'm telling you, this is what we all this you're kind of trying without insulting them we all know what you're going to do because you do the same thing over and over again we're already going just slot it down there I guarantee you'll get a goal Pat Organ got a goal I think it was against uh, against Clare this year in championship as well he went near post just again uh, just just so many examples I actually thought that this year was the best year I've ever seen it done back in the day I could only think of one it was Lark Harbert against Donal Cusack I don't know whether it was a Munster final he ran in and slotted to the wrong side and Dono was gone the, the far side. But this year was the first year where I, at least I could I could name probably 12 goals there. Tipperary were excellent at it again there this year of slotting it down to the wrong side or kind of not going across the goalkeeper as you're coming in at an angle. Um so if you're coming in from the you're coming in from the right, you're not shooting back to the, the keeper's left, you're just slotting it straight down. So look at any of those examples. If you do that, yeah, I guarantee you your the the percentage of goal scoring opportunities will will increase dramatically. It's insane. Sorry, and then just No, it's it's insane yeah. the level of detail it's gone to, isn't it? Like Joe, like I'd be chatting to Willie there and he'd be I knew that Dermot Moore in Dublin as well, and he'd be talking about Joe taking penalties against opposition and the hurly hand and the weak side and like the level of information that's available to players now with regards to their finishing is just it's it's just insane, isn't it? It's it's unbelievable. Like people are going to as well. Yeah. And even I remember hearing um something before of of the, the All Ireland final, you know, uh, Davy Fitz had gone out with Shane O'Donnell that year that caught, uh, actually he'd scored a hat trick against Cork in the final and uh they had again they had said that uh, Nash was was weaker to his right, so finish every ball down to his right hand side. And again, if you if you notice it, again every single time it was a carbon copy of the way that they were scoring. But they constantly kept going to that side. But it was the first time I was thinking, Jesus, are people actually going reviewing goalkeepers? It's back in thirteen that they're looking at their weak side. And then because obviously I was playing back then, I was like, fuck, is someone actually looking at me and looking <laughs> at my weak points? Like, Jesus, that's embarrassing. And then I, then I started getting all paranoid, going. <laughs> oh, fuck you start going off on a tangent then of, of the video analysis that people are doing but they do everyone's honing in on goalkeepers now and making sure looking at their weaknesses looking at whether they're decent in the air or how comfortable they are when they're coming out with a ball or whether a, a team actually uses a back pass to them and if they don't well then there, there's a great chance that you can press because obviously the likes of Limerick you know when you're talking about stats and stuff like that I remember looking at it there this year that's uh they use Nicky or Nicky Quay touched the ball twelve times from open play in the Munster final, and again that that included five back passes. But again, other teams just don't use the goalkeeper because they don't trust the goalkeeper, and then obviously that takes a whole different element to your game. Nicky Quaid's outstanding for give the ball back, and then he's able to spray the play, he's able to set up attacks, and again he set up four points from that Munster final just from open play. It wasn't just directly from him, but just calmly giving it out to the next man, the next man, and building from there. Whereas, again, other teams are still, even if they do give the back pass, it's just driven long and lost. Yeah. Um, One of the best teams, actually, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if you're still watching much Camogie or not, but um, probably Cork took 
goalkeeping to a different level this year with Amy Lee. Like they, they were using their foot and play the whole time, switching the point to the switching the point to the transition. Like their puck outs were superb. I thought they really, really took Camogie goalkeeping to a different level this year. Um, I thought she was absolutely superb. Like just yeah, yeah. She was. Uh, she. I couldn't agree more with you because I, I looked at one. I was looking at di- different keepers, just even doing the manual and looking at the keepers and looking back in championships, just to um, have my own stats right. And and one team used their goalkeeper twice for a back pass in the whole of championship uh, this year. One of the the senior hurling uh, teams. And then I looked at that. And I was looking at the final, and Cork used Amy Lee twice in the first seven minutes for a back pass. Like just just alone for that, she was outstanding, just mopping up her confidence. And again, I saw her against uh, Kilkenny in the in the quarter final. It was before the the Clare Kilkenny game. Um, again, I just thought that her confidence levels is, is through the roof. I I, I kind of know Amy briefly from from she's from the Pierce where my wife is from. But she's uh she has just obviously grown into it, and obviously she had to spend a long time on behind Eva Murray, and she's grown there. But she's she's made the position her own, and I think even last year she was uh she was fantastic. She was lucky for the goal in the final, with the kind of miss hit that kind of fell in around the goal, um. But again, came back stronger and better than ever again there this year, and I was delighted, absolutely thrilled that she uh, ended up winning. But she is an outstanding. But if we, if we finish off the last two things, I know you were saying that the five footwork communication positioning, I would say that you have to make it game specific. Um, the very easy way of making game specific activities is having a third person in around the goal. I see a lot of keepers, um, just a, a kind of a quote from one of the, the club keepers that I've worked with before and I took six shots on him. Um, and then I, sorry, someone took six shots on him and I hit in the six rebounds. He batted him out to me and I went, Sean, that you said his name there's six <laughs> goals there and uh, he goes yeah but sure stop the first one and I was like you have to you know for him he was like you know once I stop it that's my job done and like it's not there's so much more you have to make it realistic in a game you can't keep batting every single ball out so you, you have your keepers and there's a reason why there's that uh, ball part around the, the 21 in front of the goal because everyone's lined up there and hammer shots at the keepers but again, you have to make it specific. You have to have someone in around the, the square. Again, I'd often do it with activities. It's very simple. You you warm the keeper up, even on a match day, by hitting in your high balls in them and get them used to the catch. And when the confidence is up, then just add in a third person. Add in it, add in it, make it, bring it to the ugly zone there of having someone in around the box there where if it does drop, that then you're just reacting to the ball then. That it's not just dropped and you're casually going over. Um you're you're going over, and then unfortunately you don't get the rise. It's again, if I was uh, being harsh, I'd kind of look back. I remember last year, I think it was uh, Aaron Shanner's goal uh, against uh, Wexford in the All Ireland quarter final. Mark Fanning had dropped the ball, which everybody does, but then unfortunately he didn't get the rise, and Aaron Shanner got the flick in and ended up going to the back of the net. And that's what I'm kind of talking about there. Of uh, of you have to be sharp in around the breaks. You have to be used under, to under pressure, having, like yeah having someone coming in from the side and again you know third person even if you're taking puck outs you see a lot of people taking puck outs and the keeper has absolutely no one in the middle he has no obstacles whatsoever and obviously he's able to hit a ball out to a lad 50 60 70 yards but then you start putting someone where he has to hit it over the head like make it as specific as game specific as possible and the last thing is decision making and decision making then obviously you include in your activities it does it does come from having a third person there where obviously instead of having nobody in and you might go out and rise now all of a sudden you have a third person coming in and now you might flick it out to the side and then raise the ball but just make them that that there's a 
it could easily be that you're taking a shot and you're running in at the keeper and all of a sudden then they have to make a decision, Jesus, am I, am I going to rise it? Am I going to flick it? Am I going to go down, get a low block? But try and make, make them make as much uh, decision-making as possible so that they're able to then think quicker then when it comes to the, to the match. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. It's just, it's it's changed so much, hasn't it? Like, it's like even just listening to you there talking about what your own experience was versus to the detail and everything's there now. I suppose it's it's part of the natural evolution of the game as well. I suppose hurling has gone through a transformation as a game, I suppose, if we, if we look at it in general, as opposed to specific to goalies as well with regards to the information that's available. But I think um, any young goalkeepers coming in um, have, have never had as much information at their fingertips. Last question on goalkeeping, David, and this, this is a, one that always interests me, is from your experience around counties and clubs, are clubs and counties doing enough to develop goalkeepers? Like, Given how important we've talked about this position, it's a high possession, high skilled position now, are clubs and counties doing enough to develop goalkeepers or is it still being left up to chance a little bit in your eyes? It's definitely still been left up to chance. It's still it's still not at the level it should be. I still don't think it's at the level where football, Gaelic okay, football is at at the moment. Definitely not. Um, again, it comes down to resources and, and when people kind of, the way I would see uh, hurling at the moment, it's still kind of, let's get in a load of selectors and then right, everyone has their jobs and then right, uh, you don't have a job. Will you go down and do a bit with the keepers? And that's kind of where it's at. Or you might get an injured player in and they might do something with the goalkeeper. Or it's kind of a case of, look, lads, go up there and practice something. Like, you know, I often kind of talk about it again when I'm talking to managers and coaches. Just be respectful of the way you kind of speak to your keepers because it it, it, it impacts on them. Like, if you're talking to, if you're a manager and you're kind of going, lads, you just go on up there, like, and it's kind of, like they're washing you away at the top of the field. Like, we'll see you in a few minutes or fill in here, lads, because we're short a few. Like, instead of just, you know, changing the language, going, Keepers, I want you to go up there and I want you to practice uh, puck outs and catching or even ask them and kind of go, where do you feel that you need to practice on tonight? Come with a plan, give them a bit of homework to do and send them up to the far end of the field. Or if they are coming into a drill and you're adding them back into uh, an activity, uh, simply say, lads, I need you in here for your first touch. I need you in here for your communication here to organise the defender wherever you're at. But just get specific with your goalkeepers and have a bit of respect for them because you actually do need them. And even like, small little simple things of... of um, and often can say, you know, when you're finishing off an activity, like how many times do keepers or do managers or coaches say, right, next goal wins? And like, needless to say, the one person is going to walk off pissed off, even though he could pull off a save, a double save, a triple save, and then it goes into the back and it's done. That's it, lads, blow it up, and we're going home. And it's always kind of just even a, maybe to say, lads, we're going to end on one more, one more scoring chance, and that's it. Keeper makes a save, done, blows the whistle, they're buzzing. Just small little things about how you, you communicate with them, even at half time. Even if they make a mistake um, during a game, you know, the, the usual thing is, unfortunately, they're probably the furthest person away from you as a manager. And you end up then roaring something down to them. Wake up, will you? And next thing, obviously, like most keepers most keepers are a bit headstrong. And they are a bit, Jesus, they're a bit like Katie Kaboom back in the day in Animaniacs. Like they, 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 can, they can be explosive. And if you're pissing them off, they're going to piss, they're going to take out their anger. And that can go in any kind of way. You need a calm and control keeper. So I'd often kind of say, if they do make a mistake, have a chat with them at halftime or even send someone down and just have a brief chat with them. They're all okay, everything grand. I often kind of find that sometimes in your head as well, what you think the manager is thinking can play into your head and you're, you, get all, you get all caught up in that. Whereas if you can send someone down 
a little kind of trick that you can do with your keeper is just kind of say, are you all okay? And then they might go, oh, look, and I dropped the ball. You can go, I don't mind that. Just the next puck out, I want you to hit Mary, okay? Whatever, wherever you're going with your next puck out has to go down top of Mary. She's dominating. And then their focus completely changes, goes right. Now I'm going to start focusing it. As in, they're not pissed off at me. You can rattle them after the match if you want. But just in that moment, give them something else to focus in. They only have two things. I thought they have two, they have two, um, two major jobs in the game, but their own team that they have to focus in on, regardless of whether they made a mistake or not, is the ball in their position. That's the two things. If they get that right, if they're looking at the ball and making sure then they're in the position, if that ball comes in, those two things, or even the back's positions where they're at, that's the thing that they should be focused in rather on some activity that happened. But coaches can play a, a very a significant part in even just the, how the, the mental control of... Uh, of a goalkeeper throughout the game, and that comes down to stop roaring at them, really. From, from yeah, from right. <laughs> yeah, look, it's a fantastic insight. I suppose, like, if you go back to one of the points you made earlier, it's it's such a fragile position, it's such a tough position, Joe. You make one mistake, and it could be the focal point of the game or the focal point of the analysis, like you were saying there, Joe. You might have, if you conceded a goal, there might be 10 photos of it on Sports File. If an outfield player makes a mistake, there's going to be 10 photos of it on sports. So, you know, so just everything is amplified because I suppose the consequences of your mistake are are more sudden. You know, like I suppose a centre back might make a mistake and 25 seconds later, the ball could end up in the back of the net or 10 seconds later, the ball might end up in the back of the net. But ultimately, it's the keeper picking the ball out of the net and he's beaten. And it can be forgotten in the analysis that it might have been a mistake out the field that led to it or whatever. Whereas with the keeper, you make the mistake, the result happens there, it's bang, it's, it's instant. But... Like that's like that's a real interesting insight. I've definitely taken a few notes here myself. Not, I'm not the kind of player manager that bollocks players anyway. It's just not my style. But I think just to that kind of I suppose psychological um, insight into the goalkeepers I think is very valuable. So I think people listening will, will find value in that as well, David. Um, I'm going to move on a little bit. So I'm like as a as a coach, I suppose as someone who's learning about coaching, I'm fascinated with that we can have one destination, but every coach will have a different way of getting there. And I just love hearing about the different insights and different different um, ways people have. So I'm going to ask you a few general questions and I'm going to ask all the guests. And I suppose I'm just really looking forward to comparing all the different answers. So the first one was a bit of a cliched one, but who is the person you've worked with um, who has influenced your coaching or management style the most? Yeah, <laughs> I would say, um, look, to, to, to really quickly give give a, a few few mentions there to people because um, I think first and foremost, I think we're all kind of, uh, we're obviously all the offspring of our own fathers and and mans as well. And that work, that the work ethic of, of my father, you're kind of, you're basically, you're either working or you're lazy. And that's, that's kind of where things are at. And uh, you'd still bring that with you. It's how you're brought up. So he's probably had the biggest influence on, on kind of where I'm at that you basically give everything you possibly can for anything that you're doing and you do it right. And it's it's very, he's very direct with that. He's a very honest man, but he's, he's very direct in, in his work ethic. He's still, he's heading into his latter years of, um, but he's still farming away, like and doing more than I could ever do. But, Work ethic is massive from him. If you look down to brother Damien Brennan, he cared about his he cared about his players. Uh, the amount of work that he would have done, I would have had him in, in secondary school. Um, he would have obviously coached me when I colleges and I got to a B All Ireland as well. And uh, he would have spent every evening then doing grinds with us, doing grinds not just with me, but like another group of five. And then that broadened out when he was with the county minor team. He would have done grinds. I know Richie Hogan, Paddy Hogan. He, he would have just he would have done so much 
outside of hurling. And to actually have someone that cared about that was just absolutely massive. Brian Cody is probably the best motivator I've ever seen. He'll, he'll find something to be pissed off with to motivate a team and to get them to succeed the way they were. So that that's where his real big strength was in and always having something new to, to focus in on. Uh, Michael O'Grady kind of calmed me down. Just the last two, Michael O'Grady calmed me down. Um, I was quite a, I would say a rude coach when I came out with Dublin Camogie because I believed I'd probably come from an environment where when you walk into a dressing room, don't say hello to anyone. Like they should respect you, you know, kind of. Um, and that kind of fear mentality of trying, trying to strike a bit of fear in everything that you're doing. And I suppose even in the way I was coaching, I was kind of supposed to be the bad cop really that year. And uh, and then Michael kind of said, "You are your own. Basically, you are your own person. You've only you've only two fucks a year to give out." <laughs> Used it wisely. Thought it was. I thought it was the most amazing, amazing piece of advice that I've ever gotten. Um, you see some managers and they're, they're effing and blinding every single night. It just it just loses its whole uh, the, the whole of, uh, inf or impact of it. But that I thought he was brilliant and just kind of he was looking at me and seeing how I was developing over the three years. But he'd constantly just give me little nuggets there to kind of work on and how to deal with players. And then. The last one was Cahal Fallon. I went in with him uh, my first year when I was with Kildare. Uh, we finished up early. I got bet by uh, Ross Common in the... He had beaten him. You would have been with Joe's team probably the year previous and you bet them by 26 points. Then we went down to Ross Common got bet by a point. And it was it probably still is one of the lowest uh, parts of my management career. But again, I did very little if no analysis on on uh, Ross Common. So you're talking about where things have gone. I knew nothing about their team. knew nothing about the... We went down to that league... You know, the pitch was whatever. It is a tough, it is. And I just did absolutely nothing on the referee, nothing, their style of play whatsoever. But the amount of things that I was trying to do on the way down, I was still trying to organise whether the bottles were going to be in the dressing room, whether we were going we were going to the swimming pool afterwards. And someone had organised, Deku Tula, a wonderful coach that, that was with me, he had organised the hotel and then I just double check and then there was confusion and I was ringing up the top of the bus so all the stuff was going on in my head and then I went in with Cahill and uh, we ended up losing that game by a point like I said and it was massive at the time I went in with Cahill that year he asked me to come in and coach their team and then I just saw a manager who had who was just outstanding at delegating I would have had a very small team because Kenny had a small team and I would have tried to then fill in the blanks wherever and spread myself out in kind of you know, you know simple things like washing bibs or I look, I look at I look at our own analysis or I'll clip all together these clips and do whatever it is. Um, I'll do a bit of coaching. I'll do whatever the warm-up or I'll take the forwards or whatever. And uh, I'll do all the talking half time. That's no bother. That's doing with me. And then when they were called and he had everyone with their own little jobs, everyone knew it. They went to the day of a match and everything was controlled. He was calm and composed, always with a smile on his face. Um, and mainly had a smile on his face. And then he put half time, even simple things at half time, he had... They're the forwards. You're in charge of the forwards. Someone else was in charge of the backs. Someone was in charge of the keepers in midfield. And then everyone just had their own little thing. And I just thought, Jesus, wow. You have you know how to delegate. You have everything down to a, a, a minute. Like 10 minutes before the match or 20 minutes or whatever it is. Just had it off to a tee. And obviously I knew then that, Jesus, I need to really seriously add to my backroom team. And that's kind of, I'd say, my experience with him and underneath him took me on a whole different direction as a manager definitely he was outstanding yeah that's that's, that's really interesting I suppose I, I kind of still I've been coaching for a long time managing for a long time I'm still kind of trying to find my way a little bit and 
from my own professional life, I'm good at managing. Right? I'm used to managing people and project management and stuff like that. But I much prefer coaching. So I'm still trying to find that balance between am I a manager, am I a coach? And that was kind of the question asked earlier on. We went off on a bit of a tangent, but the differences and stuff. But the it, it, it is a struggle. You know, you can try and do too much as the manager and the coach. I think it's very important, like what you said, what you learned to have different people that can do those different roles, you know, and it's probably what I got right in Dublin the second year was Colm Codd was doing the analysis and that was it. And Connor, Connor Clifford was doing the SNC and that was it. And we had our every job person for everything. It's so much better when you have that, all those people, but you have to trust them to do their jobs. But the people you touched on there are very interesting. Michael O'Grady, obviously one of life's gentlemen was very good to me as well in Dublin, especially when things weren't going well the first year, you get an old text off him. Best of luck, we're bringing a bus down to the match and you know, it'll, it'll be fine. And this kind of stuff, Joe, you know, small little things or no phone call that, that, were, that were fantastic, uh, gentlemen. But the Brian Cody one is really interesting, obviously, fantastic motivator. I didn't like, and you know, go to coaching courses and Brian would speak, and you'd never, he doesn't really give much away, you know, like he says his piece and he might speak for an hour and he doesn't really say much. But in 2016, when we finished up with Kildare, uh, Mick Wall and Gerald Walsh asked me to do a small bit with the intermediate Camogie team in Kilkenny. They, they were after taking them over. And we ended up getting to our Ireland final. And the Thursday night before the final, we were in Nolan Park. And the previous Sunday, Tipperary had hammered Kilkenny in the Ireland final. Shane Park. So to get finished training in Nolan Park, whatever. And we were sitting around, we were giving out a bit of gear or something or a few sandwiches. And Next thing, Cody walks in the door. I didn't know he was coming, so I'm kind of like, jeez. So walked in, closed the door, and he kind of stood there. And first thing I was struck by is just the presence of the man. Like, you're kind of going, jeez, there, like there was like an aura around him. Like, And he starts just kind of talking, and he's like, jeez, lads, everyone is saying, Kikini, you're finished. Everyone is saying, Kikini, you're finished. He just kept saying it over and over again. And he hit the table, a fucking rap inside Nolan Park. He says, we're not fucking finished. And he says, don't you forget, when you have that black and amber jersey on your back on Sunday, you're better than your opponent. You're automatically better than them just because you're wearing the fucking jersey. And he starts going off one. And I'm just sitting inside in the corner going, geez, this is unbelievable. Like, I didn't know where to look. <laughs> I was like, I'd never seen this side of him before as an outsider. And to this day, I still think, geez, I wonder did he know there was someone from outside Kikini in the room? Because I don't think this is a side of his uh, of his character that you see in the public. But I just couldn't, I never, I couldn't, I'll never forget how I felt leaving that room going, Jesus. Like, this is unbelievable. I can only imagine how the players felt putting on that Kikini jersey on Sunday. Like, you know, just the motivation of the man, just the way he spoke, to come into a dressing room like that four days after losing our Ireland, he was so confident in himself. And I just thought it was unbelievable. Like, but that was my only experience. I mean, obviously, you've <laughs> had years of it. So, but that's my Cody story. I'll never forget it. I know. It's, 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 it's an incredible belief. He has an incredible belief in himself. Number one, and then in the ability to win, regardless of, you know, again, we were down with 10 points in Scotland in the Leinster final, and the the key phrase, he came into he came in the dressing room, and I, I knew where we were gone. Like, the game was gone. It was gone from us. Could have been 12 points, and he came in at halftime and goes, anyone who, thinks, anyone who thinks this game is finished, fuck off in there. And I was like, Jesus, okay, that's... So, and I remember just thinking, Jesus, you actually think we're going to win this game? Like, But again... <laughs> It was brilliant. Small, small and simple things. And we didn't win the game. We ended up winning the All-Ireland all right after that. But again, that was just, uh, that was him motivating-wise. You never kind of came in and, and got the same, chat. small little things. He knew when to press the buttons. He knew when to go after something. 
He knew when to go after someone on the team or go after an opposition or go after... He's even one year there. He kind of he went after the um, we we had lost. It was 2012. We had lost the All Ireland's. We lost that Leinster final to Galway. Uh, we had continued on, but because we then lost Leinster, we were the second team in uh, going to play the All Ireland semi final. So instead of having four weeks before the final, we would now have we'd have to play against Tip, and then only have two weeks preparation for an All Ireland final. I remember him coming in and kind of just going. Uh, no one gives a fuck. No one gives a fuck about this. Not even, uh, not even the county board want us to win it. They put on a club games the week <laughs> after, and I remember just thinking, going, they don't want us to win. And basically, this was this whole kind of like we're only in this together, and nobody else wants us. And it was just, it was brilliant. Small little thing, kind of going. He obviously wanted the games cancelled, club games cancelled. They were like, look, we, we normally have it. We're going ahead with it. And he just flipped it, and uh, yeah, just little. He, he'd find ways of. Uh, Master of getting up for a game that way, yeah, that's it. And there's other things. Look, we all have our, our weaknesses, and Brian had had his way of doing things. And uh, but motivating, you can't argue with how he, his ability to motivate. He was outstanding that way. Yeah, unreal, unreal. Um, I suppose the next question I have for you: what What does the day of a training session look for look like for you? Um, and just kind of give me the outline of a usual training day. You know, what kind of prep do you do for a session? What kind of meetings are you having with your coaches? That kind of stuff. I think most of it starts nearly from um, if you're just looking at a regular Tuesday training session. Um, you obviously have the match. The first thing that happens after a match, uh, in preparation for that training session, is you will have. Uh, I'll go home. I'll analyze the game. I'll do my impressions on the game. Uh, the impressions is pretty much anytime you. It's the three main areas. Did you touch the ball? When you did touch the ball, was it positive or negative? And then if you didn't touch the ball, uh, did you do any tackling? There's pretty much it. That'll be sent up to the team. Uh, we'll then put together, Nigel or the, the coach will will clip together, obviously all the stats and analysis, that's all put up there. Then we'll have a discussion about where we felt that we went down and that'll be the focus. That'll be the focus on, um, on Tuesday's session of where we need to improve. That'll lay the foundation, that kind of, that Sunday evening conversation, that Monday morning before you go to school kind of conversation of where Tuesday night will be at. Um, then the opposition analysis will will come into play. The, what we brought in there this year is seven seven to about twenty past seven is opposition analysis. So we have that clipped together by the Gaelic performance process. Uh, that that's who worked with us. They that's twenty minutes of where they how they play. We then did a gym session for forty minutes because what we tried to build in there this year was uh, the fact that. Players were on the field three times. If the players then have to do another gym session or, or there are two gym sessions, that's five nights of the week that they're away. And then it comes into that bit of paranoia from a management kind of going, well, is your man doing the gym or he's not doing the gym? And, and I know as much as you trust players, there's always a few that may or may not. Whereas if everyone's in the gym together, they can do their gym, they can do their pitch session, they can go home and they can rest, relax and enjoy life with their family and friends on that kind of Wednesday night. So that's what we did there this year. That gym session then provides you with an opportunity while the coaches are out onto the field organising the session um, and basically how we're going to play against the opposition and how we're going to counteract what the opposition are going to do on the Tuesday night. You have that 40 minutes then to go around and talk to the players about their impressions. And you'll just pinpoint those kind of six, seven lads there that you feel, yeah, I really need to go in at that. I feel that they need that compliment. They need a bit of a boost or we need to have a discussion about where things are at. But you generally arrive, 
training's at seven, or if the video analysis starts at seven, you arrive at six. But kind of as soon as you get into the car again, you're talking, you're talking about the session and so on. You might try and clip off a few things with a few more of the management team as you go along. But then, yeah, so they've all the warm up done in the gym because they've that done. They're out into the pitch, it's straight into poking, straight into the opposition play, how we play. Um, and that's it. And you generally try and give them that kind of 50 minutes near the end then to show basically do they deserve to be on the panel or on the team and you kind of you'd provide them with that kind of 15 20 minutes of opportunity then and that's it that to be your Tuesday night session yeah no it's very interesting the the, the hour you're saying there the hour and five minutes you have in the car I always found that very beneficial as well anytime I was traveling for coaching it's the car becomes your office a little bit isn't it it's just a fantastic way to to catch up with people and, and get those crucial conversations done as well um, it's all the small niggly ones that you don't want to have you don't want to, you don't want to be talking kind of random rubbish when you get there. Like that is a that's a perfect prime moment to look at a player in the eyes and kind of go, "How do you think you played?" You know, doing that on the phone it just doesn't work. But if you're there with a player and then you can kind of see see their own reaction to how they play, and, and that can tell a lot. There, when you stand in front and they're like, "I think I did great." Yeah, scored three points. You know, and you're kind of going, "You did nothing else." Like you didn't do any work right. But it's just funny just talking to them face to face and then be able to show them analysis or short of clips, whatever it is, it's a, it's a great opportunity. So you try and have all that kind of rest of the management talk done in that kind of hour and five minutes, whatever, in the car on the way to training. I'm just, I'm just laughing there, though. You reminded me, my, my big thing last year was that if, if I was leaving someone out of the team, I'd always tell them face-to-face. And oh, yeah. uh, players kind of copped it like that. If we were naming the team on a Tuesday before training, that if I was looking for him for a chat, they basically been to the team. I remember going over to Elise Jemison Murphy before training. I was walking over to her, I was like, Elise, and she just looked at me and went, Oh no. <laughs> and she just knew straight away. So, but look, yeah. it's, as you say, it's better than doing it with a phone call or, or whatever. So I think the, that little bit that's, of personal butcher. That's, that's the other, only other thing I'd be very happy with uh, in a bizarre, kind of twisty way that um, as manager now, I got dropped for an order in the final, obviously, which was the, the toughest. Things I remember going back into dress, I was I was shattered like and uh, uh, but like now when you're dropping players for matches, you know, and they're kind of going, oh my god, and they're all good. <laughs> I actually have used the one person kind of go look, and I know how you feel like as in like a drop for an hour in the final. So nothing, nothing they say after that can really counteract because they know. <laughs> It's rare that you're going to be dropping for a senior order in the final. I know that whatever way that comes across, but no, it, it was a good experience that. It's a good experience to have because they can't. You can't tell me how pissed off you are because I know. Because I remember at the time, Brian goes, "I know how you feel," and I went, "You." I said to him, "I said you having a fucking clue how I feel, having a notion." And then he he looked up at the he looked up and goes, "Do you know what? I don't know how you feel." I remember going, "Why are you smiling?" Like, is it like this is this is earth shattering stuff? Like, but yeah. at least then when you're talking to players, you're going, "I genuinely know how you feel. I know how disgusted you are. I know it's a first round of championship or whatever it is. I know it. Whatever it could be." Could be anything. Last league game, you're just not starting. It doesn't make a difference. I know you're pissed off, but Jesus, you have a chance to come back from that, you know. And other than is kind of such a final year. It was my last game as well, like so I knew I wouldn't play the last game, like so these kind of things. It is the uh, that's why it's good. It's good to bring these kind of own a bit of experiences from players back into management side of things oh. and try and help players probably deal with it a little bit more. Yeah, look, they're they're all the soft skills that are crucial to management. I suppose look, I have a thing that like I don't necessarily think that excellent players make excellent coaches right like it's so I think coaching is about communication and teaching and pedagogy and yeah. and all this but I do firmly believe that ex-players and excellent players make excellent managers because as you say 
like you've experienced all these things, you know, you know how guys are feeling before games, you know what it's like to be dropped and, and stuff like that. So I think like a lot of the soft skills you pick up from your experience as a player maybe transfer more to management than necessarily to coaching. Like, you know, but um, I suppose the, the line between the manager and the coach can be blurred quite a lot at the lower levels, maybe in club and stuff like that as well. But um, what are your three non-negotiables for any team you're involved in? Um, you, you have to be on time is, is number one. If you, you know, I know that that quote, you know, on time is late and whatever, and, and so on. Uh, I just, I cannot stand if someone is dragging their arse coming through with about five minutes of training and they're not focused in on why aren't you out in the field about half an hour early perfecting your skills. Whatever it is, whether that's management or whether that's players, you have to be early, proper early, where you can actually try and improve some aspect of your game. Whether that's a coach go around and talk to two or three of your players or whatever you need to do um, to, to make sure that the game plan is going to work. That simply has to happen. You have to have, you have to bring an energy to training as well. Um, God, uh, there, there's some players that those kind of energy sappers, like just, uh, I, can't, I personally can't stand it. Even, you know, management team, everyone has to bring an energy. As soon as you arrive, there is a job to do. And it kind of goes back, like I'm saying there with, kind of how you're brought up like there's five in the family like there's always a job to do so just do it it doesn't make a difference who you are on the management team even a day of a match it, it rots me kind of even if i see just a member of management team or even kind of the, the players who aren't um didn't make the 26 why aren't you behind the goal poking the ball out if you're a manager team, why aren't you overlooking that if a ball gets poked away, did you throw in a new one like that? Just everyone is busy as much as you can trying to do uh, just energetic. Just everyone feeds off the energy. The players feed off it and you feed off the players, but it, but it works both ways. Um, I suppose then as well, you have to kind of, there has, there has to be that element of, there has to be respect. There has to be respect from the players to the management and the management back to the players. You have to understand the, the, the importance of both neither works without the other um, and treat the players with respect. And I think if you do and, and you show them that, you get it back tenfold off them. Um, and again, I think that's just that's just vital. And even the way that you, you speak and treat your, the rest of your management team as well, it's, it's a tough one because, you know, you, you can be quite direct sometimes as well with management teams. But I, I think if anyone kind of is coming in, if anyone... If I was talking to a new member of management and you were to ask me exactly what you're saying there or a player, be on time, be full of energy. And if you do, the whole respect and everything else, that will all start following then straight away afterwards. Be organised. Be You know, anything with your coaches coming along, have everything laid out. That is absolutely brilliant. Same with players. You're organised. you have all your hurdles? Yeah. You know, do you have your helmets sorted? Do you have your kind of, even the organisation, you're injured? Yeah. Have you spoke to the physio? No. Why not? Why haven't you? Why haven't you rang them before you're on the way to training? So it's just all these little things that, for me, makes uh, the most effective um, team management anyway, and uh, and just even a group. This, this sounds so simple, but if you take one of them away, or geez, if you took two of them away, you're going over. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, like it's like you can have all the tactics you want. We we spent a good part of the hour here now discussing technique and tactics and stats and analysis and all that. But if you don't have the basics, do you want to turn up, be enthusiastic, be organized, <laughs> you're going over really. You can have all the rest of what you want in and, and you're not going to achieve anything. Um when you step away from a team, what three things would you like the players to say about you? 
Um, bluntly, that that he gave a shit, that he cared, is uh, is the number one thing I would um, that I would uh, take from it. I would have been part of teams, obviously, when you feel that you know you finish up and you're kind of going, what, what was that like? As in, like, is, did you even care if I was there or I wasn't even there? Like, uh, but you'd love to know. I, I would love. That the players felt that Jesus, yeah, when I was in there, he gave me the best opportunity that I possibly could. That he actually tried to enhance my either playing career or even outside of it there. That you try and do as much. It goes back to the brother Damien thing there. That anything that you can possibly do in any capacity at all, if someone gets injured, for instance, that you should basically my own thing is that you shouldn't sleep until that poor lad is is looked after. That everything is right. But, you know, little things like that, or if they're going to college or if they need anything, if they ask you a question that you don't stop until you get the answer to that question and you ensure them and keep touching base with them and update them that we are still looking into that. So it's just that I would love if they, they said that. Um, that, I would, that you were fair, I suppose, as well. That you gave everyone the same opportunity. They might not get game time, but that you provide that opportunity with challenge matches, maybe on a Tuesday after a match or whatever, but that you're fair in your time that you allocate to the players as well. That again, if you're number 35 in the panel, or if you're number one in the panel, you still, I'm going to tell you where you're going right, where you're going wrong, whether you want to or not. It might be, sometimes it might be a bit repetitive, but again, that I would give you the opportunity in those challenge matches, in coming off the bench or starting games, you will get the opportunity if you don't, I'll be fair enough and we'll have a chat and we'll see where we can try and develop it on. And again, if there's areas, having a chat with the player then again, okay, you feel like you're not right in some area, right, we're going to, here's the professionals, there's, the, there's who I feel that you should go to next and guide them rather than just going, you're not good enough and that's that. Or whatever, like, you know, you had your chance and that was it. It's like, no, you had your chance. It didn't work out well. Why not? And goes, look, I wasn't feeling right or I'm not eating right this week or not sleeping well. Well, lovely. Nutritionist, if, you, if you're feeling down on yourself or the confidence is low, psychologist is there and get them the help that they need that they're going right. It's not just all doom and gloom. That We can we can work on that. Um, and then lastly, I suppose, you, you like any, you would want to feel that you left... Like as a player, you, you left the jersey in a better position. You'd like to feel that you improved the standards within that county and now it's at a different level or club, wherever you're at, that this is now a standard that they will base it off, that you've improved things. It's not just a case of come in, do your job and, and head off it yourself, that you are putting in that time and effort and really trying to raise the standards and, and, and trying to even, even the other things of as my time at Kildare, because you, you'd listen to the Dublin um, footballers and, and kind of one thing I would have learned off listening to different things about them of, of their connectedness back to the community and about how they would spread their time out that you need to have a certain amount of time for yourself, a certain amount of time for your maybe your teammates or family, but a certain amount of time where you give that back to the community as well. And that's what we've tried to do. And, and in, in fairness, the lads have been outstanding just from, from the Calair point of view of um, raising a lot of money. Um, we did a, a Roar for Rory uh, poor young lad from Clane who was unfortunately has passed away since but we raised about 8,000 there or to the underage the developments in Kildare as well or just different Bernardos whatever it might be but in the community trying to give that give your time to give back as well and, and it kind of creates that extra bit of a bond between you and the place that you grow up whether that is the club or, or county and then what you're hoping is because you have that extra bond there's no Jerry Maguire then chat then next year like that, that this kind of is a case then that you're like 
bloody hell, I love this. I love playing for my county. I love playing for my club. I love the area. I love the people that's involved. I definitely want to come back there next year when you make that phone call. Like So I think it's just it, those things are, are exactly connection is massive. Mm-hmm. Well, look, that's interesting. I, I just remember, I remember reading an article years ago about what is success, you know, and like, um, so if you've eight or 12 teams in a competition, there's only going to be one of them that lifts the trophy at the end of the year. Does that mean that the other seven or 11 are unsuccessful? You know, I suppose it's important to know, like, I think for success to be measured, you have to know where a team is coming from, where you've taken them to, you know, and I think there's different forms of success. And yeah, we've bought one trophies at different levels, but some of the best jobs I've done whenever we got near winning a trophy, you know, they, they came from a, quite a low base and you're really happy leaving going, you know what? I did a savage job there and they're way better and there's better structures left behind me than, than what was there before. But there isn't necessarily a piece of silverware or a medal in the back pocket after it, you know. So look, that's a I suppose for our listeners, that's an interesting takeaway is that some of the best jobs you'll do won't get rewarded on the biggest stage or or with a trophy in the dressing room either. You know, it's like there's different types and, of success. And you remember I kind of said that after that we got Pepe Ross coming that, that first year 2019. And again, I just I felt personally like a failure because we 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 had to beat London to avoid a relegation back down into the Nicky record and uh, again, listen to what is success and they were like, just even the retention of players and that's the big thing where, you know, for me and I've said it already that if, if if hopefully the next manager comes into Kildare, if they're able to retain, you know, if there's still about 30 plus lads that are there, there's 38 I think on the WhatsApp when I left, um, if, if they're able to come in and they have 31 lads to start off from there, I'd be absolutely thrilled and that was it that we, between the different seasons, we managed to retain a lot of players. Between 2020 and 2021, I know it's COVID and stuff, we managed to retain 41 out of 42. And we ended up having to cut a panel for the first time ever. And it was it was just brilliant. But little things like that that you can just you can hone in on uh, as success, I think, is vital. And especially underage coaches in Ireland. Um, if you look at an under-12 team that you coached, are they still all there at 14 or 16? Or by the time you get to minor, if they have, you've done an amazing job. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, no, that's look, player retention, absolutely massive. No, la- last question in this section. I suppose this is one I've I've only ever been asked three questions in my whole life that stopped me dead in my tracks, and this was one of them. Um, about five years ago, a guy asked me this, and I didn't know the answer, and it, I was I just I, I was devastated by the fact that I didn't have an answer for him. But what's your coaching ethos? Uh, as a player, um. What I used to live by is trying aim for per- it was it was Vince Lombardi it was aim for perfection and I hope you reach excellence along the way. <laughs> That's what I uh, would have went, but I would have went too intense uh, in my own training in everything that I was doing at the time. I, I was I, I and why I left being a player and stopped is because I couldn't manage myself. Um, everything was just extreme to the to the absolute extreme of everything I did. Um, so that was this. That was that. Uh, now that I've changed into, you still have that to a certain degree. But my big thing would be, uh, uh, you get to know the players and understand what makes them tick, T I C K, um, or what makes them tick, T H I C K. Yeah. Again, have to. If you know that, you know what buttons to press. You know how to make them feel good when they're down, or how to perk them up at half time, um, how to kind of get a little bit of a prod them there. That's good. You're going to get some sort of reaction. If you do, do I think that, uh, again, it comes to that connectiveness then and that, that um, 
that relationship that you have with the players but that would be kind of that's how I kind of treat things nowadays and like and, and that wouldn't have always been so you kind of come in the last few years that uh definitely like year one again just going into that coaching with Camogie like I didn't know what they did in college I didn't care what they did in college I was here to kind of basically shout out drills at them and bark at them and that kind of stuff and then you kind of go no you have to in order to be a proper culture manager you need to know how to communicate with them and again in order and get a reaction out of them and get help them perform and if that's the case then you need to know get to know them and make them realize that take or take no i say the communication as a coach is so important i i have a phone book full of lads who know more about hurling than i do absolutely full of it but one one of my better skills is that i'm quite a good communicator and i think like that's that's what kind of i've got by on sometimes i've made up for my lack of maybe technical knowledge in hurling by being able to communicate clearly around game plans and and what we wanted to achieve and and just communicate with players so i think look it's it's absolutely crucially important skill, I think. But um, the next section we're going to go on today, I've given you the opportunity to turn the tables on me. I've given you a grill in here now for the last uh, over an hour. Um, so you have a few questions for me. I think I said three, but I think you might have four. So we'll let you away with it, seems you've been good enough with your time. But um, I'll turn the, turn the presenting chair over to you here now and you can fire away. No bother at all. Yeah, just, I'm always kind of wondering just about managers. Um, they kind of say that uh, and if, if you don't have stats, you just have an opinion. So my for my for my question is like, how can you quantify if a player has improved under your coaching? Like, what tools, or resources, or assessments do you use to be able to communicate back to the player? Yeah, look, very very interesting question. Um, and I suppose up to three or four years ago, probably the answer was none. You know, um, I probably would have been one of these guys that would have assumed that. At a certain level, the player would have to be of a certain competency and that the big focus would have been on game plans, puck out strategies, the bigger picture, and that it was up to the players to kind of come to the level that was required to do that. Um, I suppose a couple of different people opened my eyes, like Colum Codd, Donny Fox, around the technical side of coaching and improving the individual. Um, so over the last three or four years, I would really have kind of come around to the to the view that obviously to improve the collective, the easiest way to do it is to improve each individual as you go along. So that's that's just a kind of little background on it. Um, we've done it a few different ways in the past. Like with with, with Dublin, Cullum would have been very much along the technical side as the analyst, and he would have gone into a lot of detail on huddle with regards to the technical proficiencies or or gaps in technical proficiency on players, and then we would have gone and tried to identify them with the players and kind of doing work with them before training and stuff like that. This year uh, with Galway, my role was as the performance analyst. So I've kind of gone about a slightly different way. Um, so what I would have done is, like, I, obviously after each game, I would go back to the coaches and the players as a collective with um, learning playlists around what, what has happened in the game. So based off the game plan and stuff like that. But Cahill then gave me kind of free reign to go individual, do individual analysis with the players. So not too dissimilar to what you would have done yourself. Um, I would get Colum to pull different key stats and things. So depending on the position, Joe, so what possessions did they have, what um, what positive disposals or positive uh, use of possessions did they have, tackles, that kind of stuff. But what I was doing was I was taking the clips from, say, two or three games, merging them together, and I'd send the playlist to a player on Huddle. So they'd be able to log on to Huddle in and look at it. So I was sending these clips out of context, right? So with no con no titles on them, no um no uh comments on them 
And the reason I did that was I think part of improving the individual is to get them thinking about their own game more. So I wanted them to sit down with no context, no bias for me and go, right, why is the coach sending me this clip? What do I think happened here? How does it relate back to the game plan? So when I go meet them then on a Tuesday night or a Thursday night or a Saturday morning, whatever it is, I'd sit back and say nothing and say, right, why do you th- why do you think that you sent me these I sent you these clips, right? So I'm getting the player's perspective on their performance, first of all. So then I would obviously have my own notes and things like that on it. And I give them my perspective on it. So at the end, from working with the player, we'd have two or three key takeaways that they can go and work on then to improve their game. Or in a lot of the cases in Galway, what it was, was things that they were good at that I wanted them to double down on. Okay, so it's not always kind of looking for the improvements. It's like, because you know, if you're constantly striving for improvements, you can knock the confidence of the players if you're constantly just looking for things they're not good at. So I think it's very important yeah. to look at things they're very good at as well and double down on that. So like an example, I just pulled one example of a, of a note that would, would have for a player. So it'd be like, it was for a cornerback, cut inside to find the space and the support on the transition. So they were constantly trying to go down the sideline, getting turned over. So their cue was to cut in and that's where the space and the support is going to be. So they'd have a file then. So I'd save a file, it'd be shared to the player, shared to management. So the next time we go through that process again in a couple of weeks time, I refer back to that then. So what I'm looking for when I'm looking at her clips is, right, in that position, is she still going down the line or is she cutting in to find the space and the uh, and uh, and uh, the support and the transition? So for me, that's the improvement then, is that she's taken that on board and she's more of an asset to the team because her transition is better. So that would be an example of how we do it. I, know, I don't know what your own experience of it is. I know there's loads of different ways of doing it. Colm Codd, who I worked with in Dublin, is big into skills tests. Tony Fox is big into skills tests as well. Like you know, putting players in certain situations, can you hit the ball into the basket from not not literally a physical basket like a pocket yeah. from um, from fifty yards off your left? Can you do it off your right? Do you know, like you know, if you're given ten high balls, can you catch the ten of them under pressure? This kind of stuff. So we would have done a little bit of that. We probably would have started into that in Donny's time in Dublin. He's quite good at that. Um, so yeah, they, they'd be the kind of different ways. Like my own ways, kind of along the analysis side, not so much along the numbers, but looking at it from um, a, a qualitative point of view instead of a quantitative point of view and actually just looking at the player's game and going, right, these are little things you can improve on and then going back to that again and saying, right, have you taken it on board? Like having the player fully bought into the process instead of just telling them, listen, you need to work on this or that. So, yeah, that's that's how I would do it. Anyway. Yeah, look, you've hit, you've hit all the points, even just having the video analysis is, is obviously... Incredible having that resource there available. I know Huddle is obviously very good, but yeah, um, been able to show a player exactly showing them something and then been able to have a chat about them. There's really no going back in it rather than when you actually think about it growing up and someone saying you did something wrong and you're having that back and forth with them like I didn't. And I even find, you know, even if bringing it back to the goalkeeping there, I would often say that if you're people are always wanting to improve a goalkeeper's puck out, if you are slow mo the keeper, slow-mo their puck out and you will actually see what they're doing right uh and where they they can improve on when you when obviously obviously gdpr and all that crack if you do it about three times there um you'll you'll soon be able to break down exactly whether they're whether they're throwing a ball too close to their body it's not they're hitting it too low whether it's coming down to their hurl whether it's coming down to taking right off the ball their their stance of their body but again video analysis is just key but you've hit it all there anyway and it is great then to keep coming back and referring to it as well and so that they can see their own improvements Mm -hmm. um 
if name the best or most impactful team bonding experience you were ever with and why. It doesn't have to be you, you don't have to have organized it, but you were just part of it with one of the teams that you were with. Yeah, th- this is really interesting. So um like obviously I've been involved with all sorts of teams, club teams, college teams, county teams, all all different levels of it, of experience and stuff like that. And um like obviously with the college teams, it was always a case of which UL, 27th of December every year, on a bus, West Clare, North Tip, many pubs you possibly can, crack that, John. And and look, like it was great crack and all and, and that kind of stuff. And look, I know lads are kind of big into you know, going to the Cora or, or going to the army camps and it's it's kind of this bonding experience. But I suppose my own experience of it is I, I think sometimes these things can be very forced and I did involve managers they go, right, guys, next weekend we're going to the Cora and after that we will be bonded. <laughs> you know? Like the, like when we turn up a train and the following Tuesday night, we're going to be a completely different group. And I tell you, I don't know, like I, I find it I kind of find that a little bit artificial. I, I would think that the the most cohesive group that I've been involved in was my second year in Dublin. And how that would have arisen would have been it would have been an input of small things that all the management would have done over the course of the year that just kind of brought the group closer together. So say like you spoke about the doing the collective gym with Kildare, we would have done collective gym with Dublin every Monday night for the whole round of the year. Um, and some of it was for performance reasons, but we actually found that there was loads of these kind of intangible things, intangible benefits that were coming out of it. The group was together, they're in the gym together, they're just having the chats, Joe, where sometimes you don't on the pitch, you don't get that that time. See the music is going and Connor's having the crack with them and, we found that a, a real bonding experience and the management would be just kind of sitting up the top of the room and players would be coming over and having chats about different things. And we found that really brought us close together. Um, I don't know, did you work with Fergal, uh, Ferg McNally when you were in Dublin, Decatur? But he came up this thing for the second year that any time we won a game on a Saturday, we were going to have burritos on the Tuesday night. So he'd set up a burrito station. Now I'd say, he did it after he saw we were so poor the first year that he thought he might only have to make one or two burritos. But we got on a bit of a run the second year. It was nearly like a Mexican restaurant by the end of it. But like it got to the stage where where the players were kind of in the dressing room after winning on a Saturday going, ah, Ferg, you'll have to bring the burritos out now on the Tuesday night or whatever. And like small little things like that. We, we won a game down in Offaly and they'd beaten us the first year. And we went into that pub in Moneygall that Obama had been in. And sure, it was closed at three o'clock on a Saturday and your one came down and opened it for us. And we're inside in the pub and having an old pint. And I'd say that some of the cross guards had never seen an open fire before. <laughs> they're inside this pub in Moneygall and you're kind of everyone's just sitting around after kind of delighted with the win and just having a pint and having a chat. And it was those kind of things that that kind of brought us together as a group, I think, as opposed to trying to make one big gesture um over the course of the year. Now look, I understand there'll be club coaches here listening to this and they won't have a gym and they won't have a guy to make food for them and you know, they won't have all these resources. So maybe in that situation, you could make the big gesture, but that, that's just my experience of it. I don't know, what, what are your own thoughts on it as a player or a manager? No, just even when you're talking about the food, because it, um, again, I agree, I don't like the whole force thing. I've never done the current thing, I'm nothing against it, but I, I just, I haven't done that. Um, the, the food thing is we brought in that in 20, whatever, my first year, 2017 with Dublin Camogie, and uh, we just found the most simple way of actually doing bonding is actually, again, and Fergal had rang me, and that's where we kind of start the whole thing of uh, having food after training. And then everyone's just sitting down. Because when we actually thought about it, 
like most of our bonding with Kenny was to heading down to Langton's afterwards and having our meal and everyone sitting down and having a chat. So the fact that they had an opportunity, and it was back then, I think it was only once or twice, I'm sure things have improved now and they're probably getting it three times a week, um, that they're all sitting down, they're just chatting away and getting to know each other. When they get to know, again, get to know each other, well, then they care a bit more about it and then they don't want to come back and come back. And uh, it's a very simplistic thing. I know you're saying the clubs mightn't have it, but even if the club's brought in something that after training lads, you have to bring down a sandwich, you have to bring down some bit of food and we're having it in the dressing room afterwards. It's such an easy and simplistic way of everyone together. They're all eating, everyone's relaxed and it's enjoyable. Like even find, like, bizarrely enough, the showers were always an incredible way of getting to know lads. But that's yeah. gone out the window. No one has showers anymore. As soon as you go in, everyone just heads home. So like it's training's like over. <laughs> yeah, they arrived down, but like, the gym thing was great. And this, again, why we did it there this year before training because lads got in, they were foam rolling away, and everyone was just enjoying having a chat because they could relax for a while and get to know each other and then have the gym and, and whatever. But the food after training, I think, is key. And again, it doesn't cost an absolute cent. Everyone, it's just part of your training. When you're getting into the car, you've heard your helmet, boots, all the stuff, and you have yourself a snack for after training. We're sitting down there, music will be on, get to know each other, and that's it. Because the whole shower scene has taken that away, so it's uh, it's cheap and it's very effective. Very good. I was just laughing there, actually. One of the best ones, and I forgot about it, it was uh, Paddy McKenna and Dermo. And uh, Mick, Mick used to be the third choice goal in Clare, there. We used to go away to away games. They used to have a, a hurling competition inside in the hotel room. So the goalies used to organise it. They used to call it Hennis, hurling tennis. They'd set up a single bed as the net, and you're playing two-touch hurling over the net. This... This thing was going on for the round of the year. Like they got nearly thrown out of a hotel over in London before a game over in Cricklewood for making too much noise inside the room. But the crack we'd have at that, and the boys would have leaderboards and everything for it. And you'd be looking forward to the old away games, going, "Jesus, yeah, we must sharpen up my touch now and stuff." Small little things like that, like that you can't, you can't manufacture that. You can't artificially create that. That's just lads having the crack and just you know, these situations, making the most of away trips and stuff like that. You know, so yeah, the food is the food is really interesting. That's something I've never thought about actually, because. I think sometimes you kind of lament there with teams. You go, geez, we, we don't have food after training, so we can't sit down. Something as simple as that. Tell lads, hey, make sure you have a snack after training. We're going to spend 10 minutes shooting the breeze here in the dressing room after, or just sit down and have it after, whatever. It's a fantastic way of doing it, yeah. It's also it's recovery straight away, getting decent food into them. And it's, it's also a good, it's a good indicator of uh, where your players are at and what they actually eat after training. Like most of them won't. They'll go home, they'll shower, they'll sit down, and God knows what they'll eat after that. So I yeah. suppose you're getting, you're getting a chance to assess them as well, and uh, they're getting a bit of abundance, so it's excellent, yeah. Um, if you could join, I, I know, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go this one first. If you could revisit one game or moment in a game and change it, what would you do differently? <laughs> when you sent me this originally, I think my reply was just one. <laughs> Has to be just know. one, now. Yeah, but there is, there is one, and it, it sticks out so much in my mind, and I think... The reason it sticks out so much is it, it shaped how I behave on the line or behave as a manager ever since. And I think that's, it, was, it was a crucial moment. So in 2016, I was managing the Ashbourne Cup team in Mary Eye. And um, Mary Eye would never really competed in Ashbourne, but we got a crop of players in Limerick. Myself and Willie Banks were involved with a minor team. And we won a minor at Ireland in 2014, a minor A at Ireland. And then a good chunk of them went on to Mary Eye and we won a Purcell Cup, which is the Division Two. So the following year, we went up into the Ashburn and we ended up having a bit of a crack outfit. Um, and we got to the semi-final. We played UCC above in, geez, it was supposed to be in Garter somewhere. We ended up playing it up in that place up in Beckon, you know, that fucking um, Connacht Centre of Excellence or whatever. A really bad day. But we had decided as a group, so the management and the players, that 
we probably decided that UCC were a bit better than us. And in fairness, on paper, they were like they had the Mackies and Naomi O'Connor, Chloe Sigerson, Hannah Looney, they basically the whole Cork Cedar team and, and trained the likes of Neve Rocket and all these more for they're an exceptional team. Mm. Um, so we were going to set up, we set, we had this kind of a system that we set up against the better teams with four forwards in a diamond, and we were kind of playing third midfielder sweeper and a full sweeper, and we were quite defensive, but we, we, we decided that we were going to set up like this for the first half and then we were going to come out and go for it in the second half. And we were really, really fit. We had a lot of work done. And we said, right, our fitness here, we'll catch them. They're, they're not training like a proper team. They're kind of coming together as a college team. So we set out and we played. We're, geez, we got a wicked bad start. We were seven or eight points down very early after about eight or nine minutes. And then we really started over, like just overrunning them. They couldn't handle the extra players at the back. Our transition was good. Our support running was good. And we got it back to a point at half time. So I went in at half time and I was like, right, here we go, guys. Let's go for it now. We're pushing up 15 on 15, like we discussed, and we're going for it. And if I could just pause at that moment, no, I had no stats man or anything. It was a real small, myself and Kevin, Kevin Costello, he was fatter, and one more person would say, if it was now, Colum Cod would tap me on the shoulder and go, I know we discussed during the week about changing it at half time, but we've hit eight of the last nine points here. Let's just keep the show on the road here for 10, 15 minutes and see how we're going. Mm. And no, I decided before the game that this is what was going to happen. And we plowed on and changed it. And sure, once the whole thing opened up, their forwards were just too good for us. And we ended up losing by four, five, six points, maybe. And it just the lesson I took from that was yes, I was right to do the prep. And I was right to be thinking, what happens in this scenario? What do we do in this scenario? But don't have a rigid idea in your head of what you're going to do in a game and stick to it. You have to read what's happening in front of you as a manager and you have to adjust on the day. So if I could go back at all, that would be the one I'd go back. I'd love to go back to halftime in that game and just go, no, let's keep doing what we're doing here and we would have had a right chance. You know? So, look, big learnings from it and it's shaped. The reason it sticks out so much is probably an inconsequential game. I guarantee you there's no one listening to this who was at it. Eh? Um, but it just, for me, it just shaped my thinking on, on pre-match preparation and in-game management from there on. You know? Is there one that you have? No, I look at, I mentioned earlier on that Roscommon game, that would have been, that would have been it. Um, just, sorry, a game that shaped my life. I wouldn't, Jesus, no, I'm not, I'm not going to go back to one bloody moment because there's too many. There's too many um, of just different things. But as far as one moment that kind of changed where I was going after that coaching-wise, and uh, and like that, I had a conversation that night at the time we lost to Roscommon by a point. Um Colin Nolan, the chairman, uh, rang me that time and uh, just goes, look, what do you need? Like, you're clearly under pressure. Uh, what do you need? He was the hurling chairman at the time and we had a great conversation and it came out of that and the whole thing just lifted then. It was just brilliant because, again, it just uh, it, it just showed me you're, you're doing too much and you're doing nothing, to be honest with you. And you're not delegating and you're not putting the... the, the I suppose the the trust in the other people around you. So it was just a, it was just that moment. I'm not going down the changing room, man, because they left it. But isn't that fantastic? The chairman, though, from the chairman, like to have that support of the chairman after like a bad result and you're in a bad place. And the yeah. first thing he did was, what can we do for you? Like Carlo Bryan in Dublin was exactly the same. We were going so bad the first year. I mean, the depths of despair. Going, Carl, I'm not sure I'm the right person for this job. Where are we going with this? Like. Like, no, 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 I promise you, you're doing fine. You're Just stick with it. You're grand, you're grand. Like, George, to have that support and know that you have that backing from the top level of the county board is just, it's fantastic as well, isn't it? Especially, look, when you win things, they're all great. You know, they slap you in the back. You're a brilliant man, fair play. But it's it's when you're coming out with the likes of that league or 
you're after losing to to awfully in a league match inside no tool park or somewhere and the first phone call you get from the chairman going listen don't worry about it you're on the right track that yeah. can't be underestimated either that does yeah no any successful you have to have the the supporters the your team the players the team um and the county board is ex- extremely vital in the whole thing because uh, if they're not backing you at all and and even last you know two years ago when we we got relegated out of uh, Joe McDonough, the county board, we came back with what we need to try and improve and get back up again. And again, they were outstanding. So the, you do need the, the, the backers there behind you to make sure that they're supporting you is vital. Um, sorry, this last one there. Uh, if you could join the backroom team of any manager in any sport in any era to learn as much as you could, who would it be and why? So this is not a, I support Liverpool and I want to go in there. It's, <laughs> this is... It's no, you being a self you're, not a million, you're, not, you're not a million miles off where I'm going with this though. Um going to Liverpool but look, there's, there's a few that obviously would, would pop out I suppose being a 90s kid even though I was a Liverpool fan obviously Alex Ferguson was so dominant I suppose I have a real appreciation now from being involved in, in, in kind of high level coaching how difficult it is to sustain success you know so like like obviously Ferguson was a, a master of psychology as well and managed some big characters constantly kept his backroom team fresh and, and stuff like that and I think it would it would have been very interesting to see how he maintained that level of success, um, and it didn't always go well for Ferguson either. You know, he had to come over adversity and stuff like that. So it would have been really interesting. Like Cody, then obviously the same. As I said, I only got a, a thirty second snapshot of the guy, but like obviously you have to admire the sustained success that you guys had over such a long period of time. You know, I did it with a couple of different groups. You know, it wasn't just one group. Like had two or maybe two, maybe even arguably three groups that were really successful. Um, over the evolution of his time so people like that John Wooden I take a lot of uh, inspiration from read a few of his books his big thing is intensity um, and like I said there before Colin Codd always given out to me that 90% intensity and 10% technique but I think like his big thing was like you know um, like if you train at such a level a match should be easy but you know training mm. should be harder than a match so all those guys but look I'm going to give you the cliched answer like I couldn't think I'll give you a specific time actually so I'm going to say John Kiley and Paul Kinnerk, and you're like, oh, yeah, of course, Limerick, man. But I'm going to go to a specific time. I would love to be on their management team at the end of 2017 because yeah. they were at the end of their first year in charge. They were getting absolutely dogs abuse in Limerick. The supporters giving out about their style of play and the sharp passing and all this kind of stuff. And I'd just love to have been front and central or, or, or seen what was going on in those team meetings where they were back in their vision and had the conviction to go, and oh, guys, I know it hasn't gone well, but this is what we're doing and this is going to pay off for us. Like I think I, I would have loved to have seen that evolution of their thought process and 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 how they instill that confidence in the players. And then obviously everyone talks about you know, tactics with Paul and tactics board and all this and you know, they're, they're very good at their puck outs and their style of play and all. But like the the technical level Limerick's passing has gone to their stick passing is absolutely off the charts. And you'll know from having from trying to coach that because look, nearly every team is trying to play that way now. You'll have an appreciation for the level they're at. I would love to have seen the evolution of their technical ability as well and how they did it. Um, because I think that just like the their quality of their passing has just gone to a different level. So yeah, I'm not going to say, oh yeah, geez, I'd love to be on the, I'd love to be uh, going for the five in a row with Paul and John. I would love to have been there when it wasn't going well for them. That kind of appeared around the end of 2017 into 2018, and just seeing how they managed it and how it evolved and 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 how they developed. So yeah, that that's the one for me. I think that I would learn the most from. I did, I did uh, 
Paul Dibley, who would have been in with us, um, he's had a performance there with Kildare, uh, so he would have been playing with us, but he, he did get a chance to talk to John Kiley before, and he mentioned what was the difference between 17 and 18, and he said that they tripled their budget on food, on nutrition. So it's just interesting that, that again, I, you know, what like we talk about there, but the bonding, there's still a belief, I, I feel, out there about the whole nutrition that, Sure, look, throw them any kind of old slop after training will be grand. Like, he'll do the job. Sure, like, they, they, you know, they get plenty of enough food at home in their own house. Like, what are what are people actually putting into their bodies that are actually fueling everything at their performance? So it was obviously, that was something that they, they looked at and they feel that he made that point that that was one of the biggest areas and uh, things have definitely, you know, even improved, even, you know, clear down through the years as well where nutrition started off, where it's gone to now and what people are expecting. That comes down with nutritionists as well. But again, that whole bonding that we spoke about, it, it's if you can look and see what people actually think is proper nutrition after training, I'd say it'd be an eye-opener. I wouldn't be surprised if a warm chicken fillet roll is popped into the bag there after training. And it's uh, it's there, it's just been brewing. You know, <laughs> it's still coming down in the tinfoil. But like that, lads could feel like it's a bit of bread and a bit of chicken, like uh, you know, so... Yeah. It, it would be a good way to see where it's at. But that's a, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting, all right, just to see where... Someone were just at the lows. It's hard to believe that Limerick were ever at a point where things weren't going well. But um, yeah, yeah outstanding. Jesus, they're outstanding. Leaving Crow Park in two thousand nine after Tipperary had absolutely battered us. I was working as a GDA in Limerick at the time, and part of your role was to try and get lads involved in development squads and stuff like that. Couldn't get them involved for love nor money. And like that's why I admire John Kiley so much. Like he said, he left Crow Park that day, going, "Well, that's it now." I'm not going to stand back and watch this anymore. I'm going to put my hand up and try and get involved some way. And he got involved in development squads under 21s. And or he did as a selector, I think, with the seniors and then took the 21s and stuff like right. that. And also, like, you have to admire lads like that who, at the lowest point of a go, actually, you know what? I'm going to actually do something about this. I'm not going to be on Twitter or on the radio, slating managers or whatever. I'm going to get involved and that's it. And she's massive respect to the guy. Like, he's a legend. You know, he's the best manager we've ever yeah. had. Like, so. Um, before we move on to the last question, David, just the goalkeeping coaching manual that you spoke about, I'm sure a lot of listeners are going to be interested in that. Is it still available? How can people get it? Who do they contact? What's the story? It is, it's on hurling, www.hurlingkeeper.ie. Um, it's on my Twitter. It's uh, pinned there on Twitter at David Herity as well. If lads want to go on and follow the link there, they'll be able to buy it. Um, I know we'll have kind of videos coming, please God, in the new year. And uh uh, coaching a goalkeeping coach and coaching uh, module as well where people will be able to uh, complete that but if you go to hurlingkeeper.ie you'll be able to find it there and I'll follow the link Brilliant. we'll post the links on uh, on the side on live socials as well very last question David you've been very good with your time um, 20 years time or maybe you're, you're only maybe made another 25 years now. you hang up the whistle for the last time what's the one achievement you'd like to have in the bag walking out the door for the last time do you know yeah I, I wouldn't have ever thought about that, to be honest with you. And people are often ask you the question of going, well, where are you going next? Or what are you doing next? Or where do you want to be in five years? And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to go to training now tonight. And that's, that's, that's where I'm at. Like, as in, this is the team I'm involved with. So my full focus is on the team where I'm at. I don't care about a year or five years. I want to win with this team right now. Uh, if you were to ask me, but thankfully you're asking me way, way down the, the line, I should have to be probably managing an all-earned winning team. I think that has to be it, regardless of who it is or what county it is. Um, I think that's the pinnacle of GA. You can't get any higher than that. You can't go into Europe or the world. Like, so it has to be the All-Irelands. And, and the fact that the management, 
they, I know as coach, the coach kind of focuses in on the tactics and so, side of things, and I do enjoy that 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 element of it. The management, I enjoy that whole communication and that connectedness with the with the players, and then trying to motivate a management team. Um, yeah, I, I think it would have to be. It would just be. It would be a lovely moment because just to kind of. I'd also like to actually. The biggest thing I'd love to achieve is winning all Ireland and just be happy. Just, <laughs> just actually enjoy the moment. Not kind of not come over and go right. What's next? Just, just be able to enjoy that moment because it's just. Uh, you you might have spoke about it off air there at the start where you finish up with a team at the end of the year and then all of a sudden then you're thinking right what do I do next what do I do next and, and and you don't enjoy that moment and I remember like even winning all Ireland's and being pissed off and kind of even three days after all Ireland kind of going is that it like I want to play more or whatever instead of just enjoy that moment so if if I could to have a have a to win an all Ireland and just be there and kind of just soak it all up and I, I don't know I don't like I remember I, I always felt I was a bit kind of slightly slightly strange on that whole side of things of not enjoying the moment after a final but then I remember listening to Ron O'Gar and he said he's kind of consistently unhappy or you know that the, the fleeting moment of the win it's kind of like the chase is great but once you once you've achieved it it's kind of it's just gone it just goes like a puff of, in the wind and uh, I would just love to be a bit more present in life I suppose and just after things like that of uh, yeah that'd be my biggest thing win and honour but actually enjoy the bloody moment David, there's no better way to finish up than that. That's been an absolute pleasure. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I'm sure the listeners did as well. There's, uh, I've taken some notes myself, so I can only imagine the, the listeners have taken some notes as well. So, David Herdy, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much, Adrian. Cheers, lad.